Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Yeah, it's starting to, it's starting to feel kind of normal again. I'm all for normal again, amen? And uh, so we're going to start having some things like, you know, uh, receiving communion. Because I've had enough of those little deals, you know. I mean, I was just, it's a few more weeks, but but uh, about it reached my limit. <laughs> and uh, baptism, super excited about that indeed. And uh, we're not forgetting those of you online. I know Pastor Derek was just talking to you, but I just want you to know, I know, I know that we're a lifeline to many of you, and so grab hold. <laughs> we're throwing you the lifeline. All right, well, during the month of June, we are exploring what it means as followers of Jesus to live as strangers in a strange land. This is a theme that we find throughout Scripture. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. They confessed that they were strangers, exiles on the earth. For here we have no enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Now last Sunday we looked at Abraham who, you know, he's in Ur of the Chaldees, he's got it made, it's a great place to live, but he leaves it to become an exile, a sojourner, a wanderer, a pilgrim by faith in the land of Canaan. So we looked at the quest of Abraham as he was seeking for the city whose architect and builder is God. Today I want to look at how Moses left Egypt of his own accord and became an exile out in the desert. Hebrews 11, 24. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. All right, so before Moses could lead Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, he first had to have his own Exodus, and that's what I want to look at today, the Exodus of Moses. Now, last Sunday, we we saw Abraham. Abraham leaves the, the greatest city, the most advanced city, the most sophisticated city, the most populous city in the world. And by faith, he journeys to the land of Canaan, where he doesn't possess any of it, but he lives there by faith, believing that God will give it to his seed someday. It's there in the land of Canaan that the patriarchs are born and live out their lives. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, also living in tents. But in the days of Joseph, the family of Jacob, that is Israel, moved from the land of Canaan to Egypt because of a famine. There was a famine in the land of Canaan, but there was grain in Egypt, and God had raised up Joseph, the son of Jacob, to be a deliverer, to to preserve the family of Israel in Egypt. And so they were saved by that. 
But then, much time goes by. The descendants of Jacob, the Hebrews, are living in Egypt, but a lot of time has gone by, and there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And things began to change in a bad way for the Hebrews. And the Hebrews became an oppressed minority in the dominant Egyptian culture. In fact, they were enslaved. They became the source of cheap labor for the empire of Egypt. This is the way of superpowers. Now, even though the Hebrews are now oppressed, they continue to grow. They continue to multiply. Their population continues to increase. And this made the Egyptians very nervous. This is all out of Exodus chapter 1. They were nervous because this ethnic minority that they have been oppressing uh, is growing too big. And what they're afraid of is they're afraid of a uprising against them. And so that's when Pharaoh issues a decree. Pharaoh makes a law. And he says, all right, when the Hebrews, when you have your babies, if it's a baby girl, fine. If it's a baby boy, got to throw it into the Nile. That was the law. Now, by the way, this would ricochet back upon the Egyptians in the final plague. You reap what you sow. But uh, that's beyond the scope of our story today. Now, at this time, at this time of great oppression, when the law of the land was, you Hebrews, if you have a baby and it's a boy, you have to cast it into Nile, there lived a Hebrew couple by the name of Amram and Jochebed. And they were from the tribe of Levi. And they were living out their lives in the midst of this tenuous, difficult situation. They had two children. They had a girl, the oldest one, her name was Miriam. And then they had a boy, his name was Aaron. They had two children that had been born. And, um, but then, after these, this law was passed by Pharaoh about baby boys, they, they had a third child, and it was a boy. And the law is, got to throw him in the Nile. But... Uh, Jochebed was unwilling to do that. She defied Pharaoh's decree. She says, I'm not doing that. And so Amram and Jochebed hid their third child, that baby boy, for three months. But it was becoming increasingly difficult to keep this baby boy hidden. And that's when Jochebed comes up with this very strange, interesting, prophetic little experiment. She makes herself a papyrus basket and then covers it with pitch to make it watertight. What she's doing is she's making a little model Noah's Ark. It's like, you know, Noah's Ark was huge. This is just tiny, just baby-sized. She builds herself a little ark of papyrus reeds and pitch. And she puts this little baby boy in the ark, in the basket, puts it out 
into the Nile. And the older sister Miriam is given this assignment. She's to hide in the bulrushes. Just watch over the situation, see what happens. So Miriam's the little the big sister is watching her little baby brother, who's just about three months old, putting that basket and starting to float a little bit in the Nile. You know what happens next? The royal court comes down to the to the riverside. The daughter of Pharaoh, the princess. She's down there with her attendants, and she says, basket out there. I wonder what that's all about. And she sends one of her attendants, go, go get me that basket. So she goes out and gets the basket and brings it back. Now imagine the surprise of the princess when she opens up the basket and there's a baby in there. And the baby begins to cry and the princess is moved to pity. And she says, you know what? I'm going to keep it. I'm going to adopt this baby. I'm going to be this baby's mother. And that's when Miriam, you forgot about Miriam, she's still hiding in the bulrushes. That's when she comes out. She says, well, so you got a baby now all of a sudden. Yes. Uh, you know, are you interested in having a nurse from one of the Hebrews to take care of the baby? She said, well, you know, I'm a princess, so yeah, I'm not going to do too much work. She said, well, I know a really good nurse. And she went and got her mom the little baby's mother, Jochebed. And Jochebed becomes the nurse for her own son who is now being raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Of course, Pharaoh's daughter says, uh, well, we've got to name him. Let's see. Uh, I drew him out of the water. We'll call him Drew. It'll be his name, Drew. Because I drew him out of the water. I'm going to call him Drew, except in Hebrew you don't say Drew. You say Moshe. Or we say Moses. And so that's how Moses came to be raised as the prince, the son of Pharaoh's daughter in the royal courts of Egypt. Now as such, Moses enjoyed the, you know, the exclusive, it's a very stratified society and Moses has found himself at the top just through whatever you want to call it luck providence the purpose of God whatever he finds himself in a very cushy situation and Moses enjoyed the exclusive privileges and the and the finest pleasures reserved for the Egyptian elite and even though he was born a Hebrew and I assume he knew that he was raised as an Egyptian. He was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's his identity. That's who he knows. That's who he hangs out with. That's how he thinks of himself. That's his life. And so Moses lived the life of the Egyptian elite, safely ensconced in the royal palaces until he was 40. Until he was 40. You know, sometimes things can happen in midlife that cause us to profoundly rethink some things. Sometimes the arrival of midlife can lead us to some rethinking of things. It did for Moses, and it did for me. At the age of 40, Moses ventured beyond the carefully controlled environment that he's always known. 
Um, spiritual growth. Anybody want to grow spiritually? You just want to kind of stay where you are. If you, if you want to grow spiritually, spiritual growth almost always requires us to press beyond what we're just so comfortable with. We've learned to become very comfortable. We're comfortable. We're just comfortable. And then we kind of have a choice. We can just stay in our comfort and never grow, or we can push out of our comfort, and that's where the growth becomes possible. Well, when Moses in midlife ventured beyond the comfortable confines of the royal palace, he discovered a disturbing reality. The privilege he had enjoyed was built upon the forced labor of an exploited people, a people that he was going to have to learn to call his brothers and sisters. Hebrews eleven twenty four. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. All right, let's be honest here. The writer of Hebrews has simplified the story, uh, maybe even sanitized the story a little bit. Uh, the story of Moses leaving Egypt, because he's completely left out the part about Moses murdering one of the Egyptian taskmasters who was uh, abusing a Hebrew slave. And he was actually fleeing from Egypt, but it's, that's okay. I know how preachers think and what they do. They simplify the story sometimes uh, to get the main point across. And the main point is that in midlife, Moses chose a new identity. Let's look at it again. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This whole chapter is about faith, about men and women of faith. Faith is an orientation of the soul toward God. It's all about, in this passage, this whole chapter, about the invisible. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's by faith that we are not conformed to the world around us. It's by faith that we're not twisted out of shape by society's pliers. If we're going to be other than the rest of the world, we're going to have to live by faith, an orientation of the soul toward the invisible God. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, well, it's talking about something that happened when he was 40, we're used to talking about, you know, somebody's grown up when they're 18 or when they're 21 or something like that. Not so much. <laughs> you know, you're 18, you're 21, you still got some growing to do. Can I get a witness from somebody that's older than 21? <clears throat> yeah, he had some growing up to do because there is that phenomenon. It's a, it's a true thing of kind of the first half, second half of life. And what happened was he entered into, you call it a spiritual crisis. I would call it a redemptive spiritual crisis. He was just suddenly thrown into a situation where like, ah, I'm going to have to rethink some things here. 
Well, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's, that's given up a lot to turn in that card. To say, uh, yeah, I know I've kind of like had a pretty cushy life here, part of the royal family. I am now going to refuse that. Are you with me in this story? Do you see that's a big deal? That's, a lot of people wouldn't walk away from that. But at midlife, Moses began to rethink some things, and he said, I'm going to refuse that position. He chose instead. This is the choice. He says, okay, I'm not going to be with that family. I'm going to be with this family, and this family is the oppressed. He chose to share the oppression of God. He called them God's people. God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's so much going on in this verse. He chose. Faith is a choice. It's not just mental assent, but it's a choice that changes the way we live. He chose to share oppression with, he says, you know those Hebrews? You know who those Hebrews are? They're God's people. I tell you, that isn't what he learned in Egyptian school. That That isn't what he had been trained to think, but he's rethinking things in midlife. And he says, they're God's people. And I'm going to identify with them. And I'm going to share in their oppression. When Moses in midlife ventured beyond the comfortable confines of the royal palace, he discovered a disturbing reality. That the luxuries that he enjoyed were built upon the forced labor of an exploited people and that this exploited people were the people of God and they were to be his people that's who he was to identify with verse 26 he thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt there's a lot going on there he thought it was be- the, 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 the preacher here has introduced Christ into the story, even though this is way B.C. It's way B.C., but he introduces Christ. He says that when Moses chooses to embrace the suffering of the people of God, the Hebrews, as his own suffering, that it was rejecting the riches of Egypt for his own, you know, to be identified with Christ. It says that he, he, go back to verse 25, he chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin, you know, we say that word, that's a, that's a jarring word, sin. And we say, okay, so, so Moses says, I'm going to give up these passing pleasures of sin. And, you know, we imagine all kinds of lurid things. You know, who knows what's going on in those palaces? But if you read the story, the actual story from Exodus 1 and 2, on and on, there's only one sin mentioned. And that's the sin of the enslavement of the Hebrew people and being brutalized by that, Egypt, that dominant Egyptian culture. That's the only sin, that and idolatry, but they're connected. Idolatry and injustice. That's the sin that he was enjoying. So Moses reaches a point where he realizes, my pleasure is predicated upon and sustained by 
the suffering of people that I should rightly identify as my brothers and sisters. That's, that's, that's really quite a crisis at age 40 that has occurred to Moses. But he makes his choice. He says, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to line up with them. And the writer of Hebrews says he's, he's choosing Christ. Well, of course. I mean, of course. Because Jesus is going to say, inasmuch as you've done it to who? The least of these. Who have you done it to? To me. And he's talking about those that are poor, those that are sick, those that are immigrant, those that are imprisoned. Jesus said, these people have it hard. They suffer. I identify with them. And when you, when, when you in compassion identify with them, you're doing it unto me. Moses is doing that way, B.C. Saul of Tarsus learns this on the Damascus Road when Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul was persecuting Christians, but that didn't, Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those Christians? He says, why are you persecuting me? Why? Because Jesus identifies with the suffering. And that's why later on, Paul will write that I gave up everything. Paul's like Moses. Paul says, you know, I had all of this, and I just counted it as dung. I just gave it up. And what I really want is to know Christ. And I want, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Well, this is what Moses is choosing to do. Now think about what a radical and risky thing Moses did. You know every Egyptian ridiculed him. You know, at their cocktail parties. Did they have a cocktail parties? I don't know. Back when they were Egyptians. And they're, you know, they're in their cocktail party. Have you heard about Moses. Oh, he suddenly got this concern for all those people. And apparently he's decided to join them and has run off into the desert to join those, I don't know. You know that's how they talk. These are, these are the people he grew up with. This is his family. These are his friends. And you know that's how they're talking about him. And for a long time it looked like Moses had indeed made a foolish decision. I mean for a long time. I mean for like 40 years it looked like that. Until the burning bush. So how did Moses do it? How did Moses leave what everyone wants? What does everyone want? They want the world. What's in the world? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of possessions. This is what John says. John 1, or 1 John 2, 16. The, the world is, you know, it's the, the, lust of, the pleasures of the flesh. The pleasures of the eyes. The pleasures of possession. How does someone give that up? To live as an exile, regarded as a has-been, far from Egypt, out in the howling desert. How does someone do that? Well, we're told. Verse 27, it was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. When Moses expressed concern for the Hebrews, you know it made his Egyptian friends and family angry. Why did it make them angry? Because it made them uncomfortable. It made them uncomfortable because Moses told the truth. Now how does someone, though, have the courage to make that kind of change in the middle of their 
very successful life. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. Now watch this, watch this, watch this. Hebrews 12, 2. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. So how do you make daring, risky moves of faith in the middle of your life? Well, you do it by keeping your eyes on Jesus. If you, if you put your life on anything else, your faith evaporates. Peter can tell his story about that. Peter walked on water for a little bit. But then he got his eyes off. Jesus got on the storm and faith evaporated and he began to sink. If Moses had fixed his eyes on his security, on his finances, on his position, on his popularity, on his reputation, he would never have had the courage, or let's just say faith, to do what he did and leave Egypt. And until Moses had made his exodus, I mean, before Moses, you know, Moses is known. He's the liberator. He's the deliverer. He's the one, you know, that parts the Red Sea and he challenges Pharaoh and leads Israel out of Egypt. But before Moses could lead Israel in their exodus, he first had to have his own exodus. That's my story, too. I do, I appear on podcasts these days. I have for about three or four years. I do one a week, sometimes two a week. So I've, I've done at least a couple of hundred of them. And uh, it's amazing that people just want to talk to me. And uh, a lot of them have read the book Water to Wine. That's what a lot of the invitations come from that. And, I, and I've, I've had this question a few hundred times. It often comes from pastors. They'll say, well, you know, in 2004, you started making those changes. How did you have the courage to do it? How did you do that? Because they're resonating with it. They see some, some movement needs to be made, but they, they're, they're paralyzed by fear. They say, well, how did you do it? I said, well, first of all, I was afraid, but I kept my eyes on Jesus. I, I didn't sign up. I didn't enter this thing to be a success. I entered this thing to follow Jesus. And when you perceive that Jesus is the cloud by day and the fire by night that is moving in a new way, then you follow. But you have to keep your eyes on Jesus. If you don't keep your eyes on Jesus, then you're paralyzed by fear and you'll never move. Jesus is the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. If we fix our eyes on something else, and it could be something good, if we fix our eyes on some kind of outcome, some kind of justice movement, some kind of political movement, even some kind of spiritual movement, our faith will eventually evaporate and we'll find ourselves paralyzed by fear and stuck where we are. But that's not you and that's not me because we keep our eyes on Jesus. We, we're looking at Jesus and we see Jesus being baptized. And we say, Jesus joined us in our humanity. He joined us in our baptism. I'm going to join him 
and his baptism. I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus. Why am I getting baptized? You say, because Jesus was baptized. And I'm following Jesus. If Jesus goes into the water, waters of baptism, I'm going into the waters of baptism. And I'm going to hear the Father say, this is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Because I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on Jesus until we see that he's transfigured. And his face begins to shine, shine, shine like the sun in its strength. And we hear the Father say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Because we learn that Jesus, Jesus is what God has to say. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on Christ crucified. We keep our eyes on Jesus. This is the very center, the center of our gospel. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So we keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on Jesus. When, when we feel like we've just descended into Sheol, when everything's gone horribly wrong, we've, we've collapsed into the pit, we remember that God says, I will not abandon your soul to Sheol. And Jesus comes and says, I got you. He descends down into wherever we are and we feel so lost. Jesus comes and says, I got you. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on Jesus in resurrection because we're like those women who are in the garden and they meet the risen Christ and they hear him say, peace be with you. Peace be with you. So here's my sermon Keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Amen. Stand up with me. We're going to come to the table of the Lord. We're not actually going to come to the table of the Lord. We're going to stand there and talk about the table of the Lord, but pretty soon we're going to come to the table of the Lord. But we're going to participate in the body and blood of Christ, and we're going to begin, but we're going to keep our eyes on Jesus. We're going to confess our faith, and then we'll confess our sins, and we'll receive forgiveness because that's who God is, because we see that, because upon the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, and the Father says, of course, that's what we do. So let's confess our faith as we keep our eyes on Jesus. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's confess our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. 
that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.